Hey, I'm Ben Feinberg, and you're listening to the Hellbender Podcast from the beautiful basement of the Martha Ellison Library here at Warren Wilson College. This is a podcast of the Sociology and Anthropology Department, named for the wonderful Hellbender, the amazing, incredible aquatic amphibian that lives in this general region and is the unofficial mascot, or at least should be the unofficial mascot, of Warren Wilson College. Today's Hellbender fact. Though the Hellbender has a range of up to half a square mile, the wonderful thing about the Hellbender is that it always comes back to the same rock year after year. It is loyal to the rock where it has lived and where It's familiar with the earthworms and the other environment that it can take advantage of. And as our students just go off to graduate into the world, we hope that they will continue to come back to this lovely rock year after year, like the Hellbend. Today I'd like to introduce our guest. She's a global studies major, originally from Jamaica, Queens, New York or Jamaica in the borough of Queens, in the city of New York, Inara Hidalgo. And Inara, welcome to the Hellbender podcast. How did you first become aware of Warren Wilson College, and what led to your decision to come here? Um, Okay, so I went to a high school in Flushing, New York, oldest high school in New York City, And it was um, very underfunded, almost shut down four times (laughs) while there. My principals quit every year. So I had a whole new transition every time. Um, That gives you a little picture of uh, where I studied. Um, And I was a theater kid. And and that was like the only arts program we had at the high school. But my theater director went to school in Brevard, North Carolina, as an ODL major, <laughs> and she ended up in uh, teaching at a public school in Flushing, New York, and she hated her job, and but she found hope in theater. But anyway, she, me and her got really close, and she said, you should leave New York City. What are you doing here? You cannot continue to be in this city, and it's going to drain you, and like it, you know, it does many students who can't leave um, due to various circumstances, but um, she recommended I like look into the school page, and I did at Warren Wilson, and um, I read their like bio on curiosity and like alternative learning, and I saw the mountains, and that kind of called to me. And also, it was 14 hours away from home, and I love that, so <laughs> I I didn't visit. It was either Bennington College or Warren Wilson, and I visited Bennington, and I decided to just you know, come here instead. So. That's that's probably pretty good. So you visited places and then eliminated them. So whatever place you didn't visit was the most attractive one <laughs> yes. that's left to go to. <laughs> yep. That's a great idea. I'm glad you didn't visit here. <laughs> if I uh, visited, I don't know. 
<laughs> had no, you I, had you been out in the mountains at all before? Had you no. had many? So you had never had that much of an opportunity to leave the city. Yeah, and that was a very big calling because Vermont is too close to New York. So. Yeah, well, you know, I beat you because I went to college in 1,900 miles away from home, oh. so I didn't go home for Thanksgiving Me or neither. anything. <laughs> so what do you do over Thanksgiving when everyone else is gone? Well, I was here. Yeah. I One year, I spent it in Kentucky at a person's house from Warren Wilson College and they said do you want to come home with me to my parents and I said sure and I was just in Louisville Kentucky and uh-huh. I celebrated uh, and it was an interesting moment <laughs> being able to see um, you know a more traditional religious holiday with a family in the south Yeah, that's always a great, you know, it's Thanksgiving's really great to go to other people's families. Um, I had a friend who had her traditional Thanksgiving dinner. Her family had it always on the Friday Mm. because they had six children and they wanted to get as many free meals as they could. So all of the kids were on their own to get invited mandatorily to some other household so they could get like the extra free meal there. So I'm glad you weren't like trapped, like left all alone by yourself in the yeah. dorm over vacation. Well, sometimes I stayed here and I worked, but yeah. Yeah. And I understand. I see you actually working a lot in the in my own classroom building where my office is. Um, Inara is a very diligent, diligent <laughs> Warren Wilson student. <laughs> yep. What was that like, that transition from mm. what you described as a very underfunded, yeah. not particularly presumably academically rigorous Mm -mm. or, or, you know, teachers that might be kind of overwhelmed. What what was that transition to this like very small place in the mountains? Um, Funny story about my high school. Um, My senior, so yeah, very underfunded. My economics class, you can, New York City schools are really segregated. And um, this gives you an image of the classroom. I had an economics class in my teacher was at the top of the class teaching and the kids were throwing condoms and skittles at him um so it's rough um but (laughs) yeah to warren wilson college where there are more resources um and more support and smaller classrooms that's not 32 kids per teacher um and and during that orientation week it's the staff throwing condoms and candy right so a little switch um (laughs) um how was it like? I feel like I truly began to really love education while here because I had the resources and people who like love to learn. And also my professors are like supportive, unlike uh-huh. the high school I was in where it's people are just there and they were with public school. It's just teachers are sent to schools and they're forced to teach and they don't love their jobs. And the students kind of get that reflection from being in the classroom. So I like used all the resources I had to, yeah, while at Warren Wilson, because I mean, I didn't have them before. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. So you came here and eventually you started. You decided to be a global studies major, mm-hmm. um, although I know you've taken a lot of anthropology courses as well. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how you got your kind of academic focus here that ultimately is going to lead to what we're going to talk about later with your, your research and your thesis? Mm-hmm. I started off as an environmental studies major at Warren Wilson. Um, first two years, I was in environmental policy. And then I realized I didn't want to do science, like hard sciences. Um, I I think my work is still very much like 
environmental justice based, but it's not like chemistry or biology or any of that. But I just decided to do global studies because it allows me to take classes in the sociology and anthropology departments and also in the global studies departments without those restrictions. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a free and liberated way. The first course, by the way, that you know, Inara had with me was my language and culture class. And right after we came back from spring break in 2020, everyone was sent home and we had to finish the rest of the semester remotely and online, yep. which meant for Inara that she was sent back basically to the epicenter of the pandemic at that time, which was in Queens, New York, which was one of the first places where it really hit in a big way. And so I remember you coming up and appearing in class in your house or apartment or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And I, what I really appreciated was that sometimes you would be cooking a meal <laughs> during class, which I really felt that everybody should do when you're doing a remote yeah. learning. What was that like going, you know, being sent from this refuge Mm. here in the mountains surrounded by bears and trees to that kind of unsettling center of of so much misery? It was very difficult. I am surprised that I wrote that paper (laughs) that we had to write. (laughs) Um, I think that it was really difficult and I really appreciated to have classes to keep me sane because Uh I had one thing I could control. Um, especially because I'm the oldest and I have a lot of young siblings that were yelling at during class. So you were in a household where you had other people who had to be home who were younger than you. Who were also in class at the same time. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that... That's amazing. And you did get through that. And and that's, you wrote this pretty sophisticated paper about, um, I think it was the sort of linguistic ideology Mm -hmm. of Mm anti-Haitianism in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, anti-Haitianism, anti-blackness, um how people use like identity, ident- you know, identity words to separate themselves from blackness in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and a fascinating subject. I should point out for our audience that you are yourself of Dominican heritage. So that was also looking at mm-hmm. things that you had sort of vaguely experienced or, or were aware yeah, of in totally. your background. Yeah. All right, so part of our global studies program here at Warren Wilson is that students do a study away. And they plan for that, and that plan is always, in every case, perfect, and they get to live (laughs) it out, and it all works out completely according to plan. And you had that experience, right? right? Because the pandemic in no way interfered with your ability to study away. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I my sophomore year, uh, second semester sophomore year, I decided to declare global studies and my advisor said, "Okay, you need to study abroad." And I said, "Perfect. I've been wanting to leave the country." <laughs> and I I send in my application and I as soon as I get my, "Hey, you're going to Finland" uh letter, um the pandemic hits. Um so that's the beginning of me trying to leave the country. And then I get sent home and Finland, the school in Finland cancels. <laughs> and then um, I try to apply again um, for my, you know, I, junior, first semester, junior year. And it does not happen because we're at a peak of a pandemic. And I come back to Warren Wilson. Was that the semester we come back or were we home? I don't remember. Um, well, I think in the fall, yeah, people could could have come back I but did they come could back. also stay yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so i was here d- taking classes online in my dorm room um and um so i applied again 
to study abroad my second semester of junior year and I was placed in Mexico and that didn't happen <laughs> because the, Mexico was a level three and the U.S. was really restrictive with who entered and left. Um, and then my, my senior year, I apply again and I get placed in Thailand and I am ready to go, Thai visa and my passport. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I was advised not to go to Thailand because Asia had really strict restrictions. And if I get caught or like stuck in Asia, Warren Wilson College could not rescue me. Oh. Yeah. So I, I, it gets canceled a week before I leave and they end up. We would have come, though. I would have come personally. I would to have to rescue. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was rough. But I um, they advised me to go to the only school open to also. Another barrier of why I was so picky about where I went is because I got a, a scholarship called the Gilman Scholars, um, and they only allow students to enter countries that are a level two or less, which is impossible during a pandemic. So I was trying to find a place that would allow me to use my scholarship to enter the country. And Morocco was the only level two country um, after Thailand was canceled. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that really speaks to like the degree of persistence that this particular generation of college students has had to sort of deal with in, in order to get through and to get the kind of education mm -hmm. which you want um, yeah. to get for three different rejections before finally getting to go to Morocco. Mm -hmm. I mean, fortunately, you know, Finland, Mexico, Thailand, Morocco, I and mean, they all seem pretty similar, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, it's like I... Yeah. It's like my first choice. It nothing changed. Yeah, I mean that. I'm sure the saunas in Morocco were were great. Yeah, and, uh, and the spicy food. I don't know, but in any case, so you finally did get to go abroad your senior year yeah. and at first this semester of senior year university in Morocco. Yeah, and Ifran, Morocco. Um, yes, in the Middle Atlas Mountains. So not in the big city. It's kind of very rural in the mountains coldest peak in morocco you'd expect the desert and i got 20 degree weather and snow wow so. yeah that's i know i mean there are there is skiing somewhere in morocco there is that's right? where it happens wow so you're at the sort of elite ski resort of a <laughs> yes. university in the mountains of morocco yes and i know that you had not really had any specific kind of studying focusing on north africa nope. or the middle east so mm. It was new, but at least you got to get abroad. And mm -hmm. um, can you talk to me a little bit about that experience? I know still it wasn't ideal because there was still some amount of quarantining that had to, or right? Or restrictions. Restriction that had to take place. Yeah, I got there and um, it, the first, when I arrived in Morocco, I didn't have a cell phone, cell service. So I got to the school without a phone, which was intense. I got on a train and I hoped they got me to Ifran, Morocco, and it did. Um, but um, I arrived and the first week, it was just a bunch of like introductory stuff. Um, and then the week after that, the king says, um, at this point, I started traveling. First uh -huh. week, I'm in Tangier, um, Morocco, which is like this, mo it's like in the... Um, by the water, you can 14 kilometers away. You can see Spain. It's really beautiful. Um, and I get it. We get an email from the school that the king has implemented a 9 p.m. curfew, and that students on campus will not be getting to campus until October. So that's the beginning of wow. we're reshutting down. Um, 
And so for most of my time in Morocco, I had to follow a 9 p.m. curfew. And you cannot be relaxed when you live under a monarchy because yeah. 9 p.m. hits and the cars are out telling you to go home. Um, so, yeah, that was a lot of restrictions. And we didn't really get to interact with the Moroccan students till mid-October when they were allowed on campus. Um, so I was just with the exchange group most of the time. Yeah, so... The king is is the king the the government is the king and actually still in charge in Morocco in, yeah, in a Mor way that's different from like Queen Elizabeth or, or... Mm -hmm. yeah Morocco declared itself a constitutional monarchy um, in the after independence 1956 but it is not a constitutional monarchy the current king is Mohammed the sixth and he controls the judiciary system parliament all state agencies he is the ruler of all the, they call him the commander of the faithful so um yeah very yeah. much centralized government so yeah at 9:04 p.m. you, you are violating the rule of the yeah commander. and i did a few times but <laughs> um they just nicely said to go home um but yeah <laughs> i one experience that i've seen with students who go to study abroad at in universities in other countries, particularly the students who are, in my experience, who are interested in Latin America. And those students might be interested in going to developing where, what I don't want to use that frame phrase, mm -hmm. but, you know, global south kind of place right. because of their education and because of their sort of sympathy for fighting against um, the unequal nature mm -hmm. of, of the global world system and so on. And so they want to go and experience that. And then sometimes they have the experience of going in universities in which the peers from the host country are, in fact, the, the elite who have very <laughs> different understandings about what education is for. So they're wanting to go and immerse themselves in this other perhaps kind of oppressed world and instead find themselves in close contact with really much more powerful kind of people. The, and, and is that sort of say to, to your experience at this university or is it not mm. quite that? Yeah, well, Morocco is considered, a, you know, if you want to use the, the language of uh, global studies um, or like it's a bit outdated, but they do consider themselves developing and or third world or mm -hmm. global south in the peripheries. Um, so, yeah, they are definitely like the a very unequal wealth distribution. It's either you're extremely poor um, or you are an elite and part of you are co-opted in an allyship with the monarchy and the king. So that's how the distribution mm -hmm. happens. And I went to a school that was established by the king, Muhammad VI, and another scholar in like the 90s. Um, so it's a very new school and all the people that go there are, um, the students that go there are very well off. Their parents are either politicians or diplomats or international you know, agents or whatever. Yeah, they're so all the students are really well off, and it's mostly people that have a lot of wealth in the country. Um, and I was not expecting that. And also, Morocco was colonized by the French, and all the students there are very deep in Francophone culture because for you to be part of the elite and the government, you need to kind of 
be hands-on hands with the French. Do they use like French in their everyday life or do they French is the most common used language on campus other alongside English um and also for government officials and academics French is the language of like discourse. So mm -hmm. do they use Arabic when they're sort of at home or do they just use French pretty much all the time? Um or? Some students I talked to hated the French and they were they said you can watch, you know catch me dead speaking French mm -hmm. but most students um speak French when talking casually on campus um yeah Yeah that's interesting and I guess that does show that language is is, is this gap between the elite in the country and, mm -hmm. and, and the mass of the population. Yeah. So I want to kind of switch a little bit. At Warren Wilson College, all students ultimately choose uh, a, a subject that they want to write a thesis on. And for global studies students, it hopefully is connected to their international experiences. And so I know you went to Morocco without a whole lot of background about that country, but you had taken enough global studies and anthropology and sources to, to have a sense of what, what to look at. So can you tell me a little bit about what you chose as your thesis topic and, and how you went about that? Yeah, um, it was, I did not choose my thesis topic abroad because I was in the midst of hell, uh, tr you know, with all these COVID restrictions and then navigating a country and it was just intense um, and it was still COVID peak. Mm -hmm. So I decided on my topic when I got to campus and I didn't have much time to really choose because I'm graduating. Um, so I thought a lot about centralized states and, um, I, and the monarchy and I decided on um, analyzing the nation building strategies of the Moroccan monarchy after independence um, and how they, as I said, a lot of people, uh, the monarchy has stayed in power by co-optation and allyship with its very pluralistic and fragmented society. So I'm looking at that and how the monarchy has navigated its very strong civil society and taken its power to make themselves stronger. Yeah, it's really mm -hmm. interesting. I mean, I haven't been working with you on the paper, but, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of the nation state, you know, that, that, that people like Benedict Anderson mm -hmm. and other theorists have looked at these paradoxes, that the nation state is this really modern invention, whether mm -hmm. it's 18th or 19th or in some cases 20th century. Yes. And yet the nation state kind of in its own mythology represents itself as this timeless ancient thing. Mm. And on the other hand, the nation state represents itself as a kind of unified body, often through the creation of a kind of mythology that may focus on a particular ethnic group mm -hmm. or religious group, when of course all nation states are composed of forms of diversity and, and different perspectives. Mm -hmm. But what you're showing in, in Morocco, um, this unity mm -hmm. that, that the king speaks for does not depend on the idea of kind of ethnic homogeneity the way, say, Russia or mm -hmm. other forms of nationalism do. Yeah. Well, it, the only reason why they don't do that is to, like, it's, uh, I argue in my paper that it's a strategy. They, mm -hmm. they realize that they can't silence a very strong civil society. So they rather embrace it. Um, and in my paper, I, I look at Benedict Anderson's argument of like new nation building when it started, the modern nation. But I say that in Morocco, the monarchy has stayed in power by cope, by using a hybridized version of um, traditional strategies and modern strategies. Um, because when 
Morocco gained independence, 77% of the population was fragmented in ethnic groups and they can't mm -hmm. control such a diverse and strong society. So they just decided to use both uplift fragmentation and also uplift a romanticized version of unity and the king. Right. I mean, I, yeah. it may in some ways be similar to a place like Thailand that also has yes. a king and mm -hmm. also has a right. lot of ethnic diversity. And I know, you know, national signifiers of Thailand include things like pod thai as the national dish, which was basically made up by the king 50 years ago. That was a <laughs> dish of like a yes. small like Chinese minority in part mm -hmm. of the country. And so yeah. do you also see like in Morocco, the kind of invention of national traditions in a kind of similar way? Yes, uh, um, they in the, the monarchy used to. So the Amazigh is I'm focusing a lot on that ethnic group in um, my paper. Yeah. And the first couple of pages when I read that, I kept thinking she mistyped amazing. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So the Amazigh um, people. And I want to say that they, we can't use the whole indigenous um, rhetoric with the Amazigh because in Morocco, indigenous is not used. It's just an ethnic group. It's not like we owned the land before you did, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so the Amazigh people are an ethnic group and they are also um, called the Berbers. If you look up, you know, in on Google Scholar, but they've reclaimed the word Amazigh to mean free man rather than Berber because the connotation of Berber um, was given by the Arabs during the conquering of the Moroccan land as barbarian and otherly. So they've reclaimed a new word. Um, but I look at um, the Amazigh people who they, the, the question was about national identity, right? Yeah. Um, so the monarchy used to silence them. They pushed them to the side to the mountains and the middle Atlas mountains. And all of a sudden, the Amazigh had this kind of conscious awakening in the 1960s. And the monarchy said, oh, okay, let's, let's create a Moroccanness that includes this ethnic group. And now the, the 2011 constitution includes Amazigh as a national language and a bunch of like, all Moroccans have Amazigh identity in their bloodline. And it's like this whole thing, which was kind of created to keep such a strong ethnic group in, you know, under surveillance by the monarchy. Wow. That, I mean, that sounds almost like what happened in Mexico after the Mexican Revolution, where the sort of representation of the Mexican state before that was white, Eurocentric, mm -hmm. descended from Spaniard. And then after the revolution, they were like decided to invent you know, to have said, say, that we are a mestizo nation, la raza mm -hmm. cosmica. While people in power still tended to be, you know, from that kind of elite white group, but mm -hmm. sort of co-opting and inventing this new idea. So it seems like that's a kind of strategy yes. that people can use in different parts of the world. It's really effective. And they, Rabat, the capital of Morocco, now has an Amazigh, cultural institution, which Rabat is like an international city, which tourists mm -hmm. always go to. And you have this very modern looking um, institution, which like uplifts Amazigh culture. Um, <laughs> and also in the Moroccan constitution, they've like hybridized multiple dialects of Amazigh to one mm -hmm. to make it, you know, easier to um, put around the country in symbols and signs um, for that like 
cultural Moroccanness. Like we are yeah. Amazigh, but it's just easier to surveil and control. Right. That's yeah. interesting. Making like one dialect the sort of official one or one language mm -hmm. the official one, you know. Again, to sort of weirdly connect to Latin America, like different states can have a strategy with minority mm -hmm. languages yeah. of, on the one hand, maybe silencing them or repressing them, or on the other hand, kind of maintaining them or using them as even the symbols of oppressed groups as sort of symbols of national identity, like in Guatemala, right, where the Maya continued to be oppressed, yet certain aspects of their culture were sort of turned into national symbols, mm -hmm. even for... But, you know, you said that, that Morocco is very ethnically diverse, mm -hmm. and while this group that you're talking about might be the majority, what about, what about the other ethnicities, and how do they tie into it? Yeah, the Amazigh have multiple... Like, Amazigh is just, like, the national ethnic group, but there's multiple within that. Um, the I'm blinking, but there's um, multiple groups. There's groups in the Middle Atlas Mountains, in the Rif regions, in the deserts, um, and they're all separate. And the only ones that are being uplifted are the ones in the Middle Atlas Mountains. Um, so you kind of have a silencing of certain like ethnic voices because of this co-optation of one group um and also other groups like dissident groups are like islamic groups and feminist groups and human rights groups that um kind of are by using like an ethnic group into the um under the monarchy all those other dissident groups are silenced then you only have oh we only have one ethnic group uh -huh. that like once was against us, but now look, we're all together and we're, we exist under one Moroccanness. And, and so any alternative view almost by definition becomes un-Moroccan mm -hmm. or, you know, anti-Moroccan. But the king yeah. is not, a, is, is Arabic, which is distinct from Amazigh or what um, did you say that? The, the co-optation is so strong that Muhammad Muhammad's the sixth father married two Berber women or Amazigh women to show that allyship in the 1960s. So oh. it's been going on for a while. They started. No one would have bought it if it was just one. No. <laughs> no. No. Two Amazigh um, women um, he married. And that's when you started seeing that hybridization of traditional, this like retraditionalization re of Morocco to we cannot keep modernizing without acknowledging our traditional folkloric ethnic group. Um, uh -huh. So he married two Amazigh women. And since then, um, you've seen that constant pattern of um, allyship with certain tribal groups and ethnic groups. And you, they are not devoid of agency. A lot of Amazigh elites, um, urban elites, control the framing too. It's not only the monarchy. Um, it's just now elite Amazigh and like state agents and all the people that live in the mountains are, you know, silenced. And Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I noticed in the one page of your thesis that I really read, you know, <laughs> no, I, I read more of it. But you invoke this idea of exceptionalism. And we think of in America, we think in the United States of American exceptionalism, this idea that's promoted by I don't know, conservative and central, well, figures on all parts of the American spectrum mm -hmm. that we are special in some way. And you 
say, hey, it's not just the United States. There's other countries whose elites and leaders emphasize this notion that their nation is exceptional right. and that that's tied to a mythology of persecution, of national exceptionalism, which is why everyone's against us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the United yep. States, you can see this with like America first and the emphasis that, hey, our history is brilliant and wonderful. And anybody who tries to sort of suggest otherwise through pernicious ideologies like the current um, panic around so-called critical race theory or any of this questioning is part of a kind of conspiratorial attack on us that's been going on. And of course, with the current invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's uh, Russia, Mm -hmm. you see that same... Russian exceptionalism, that the world's against us, and so on. So, you know, Morocco doesn't seem like a global power in the same way as the United States or, or, or Russia. Can you talk a little bit about, about this discourse of Moroccan exceptionalism that's promoted by the king? Yeah, um, I think the Moroccan exceptionalism really helps the king frame, or like, there's a really romanticized image of or framing of the king in Morocco it's like overwhelmingly supported the king is overwhelmingly supported by the entire country for a reason um he's really loved by everyone and it's because you uplift such a pluralistic and democratic and liberalizing mission which is what the new constitution says we are a democratic and liberalizing country um unlike you know these other very silenced and regimented monarchies and Arab countries, we are embracing our ethnic groups and um, all our different like dissident voices into the monarchy, unlike everyone else. And that's why we're better than everyone else. But so when, Morocco uh, sees itself here, it's contrasting itself as more liberal and modern than Algeria or Syria or Egypt or is yes. what, is the, those are the others against which... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Case. So Morocco no longer just recognizes itself as an Arab state. Um, it now recognizes itself as an Islamic and Muslim and Arab Amazigh state. Um, so that's that is it's, you know, rooted in, in its Moroccan exceptionalism because mm-hmm. it's it allows for diversity and pluralism. But it, I think that within that discourse, there's definitely an intention to control and surveil these um, m- these communities by claiming that identity. Uh-huh. So in some ways, it's, it's similar to what might have been the rhetoric of the Shah of Iran, say, in the 1970s, that, you know, this was an intrinsically kind of modern nation that was westernizing, and this authoritarian regime wasn't, shouldn't be looked at as oppressive authoritarian regime, but as, um, you know, a necessary part of that kind of progressive mm-hmm. modern yeah. um, move. Um, I, if I had more time on my thesis, I would probably do an analysis on Turkey and the Kurds. Um, that was the potential that I was going to lead with, but you know, time constraints, and I don't have an entire year to work on my research. But um, unlike Turkey, which we see this whole like Kurdish nation within a nation movement of like the Kurds have created their own national movement in Turkey um, because of such a regimented and um, regime. Unlike in Morocco, that that like 
malleable and pluralistic discourse prevents nations from building within the country. Um, And that's why they're so effective. Well, right. Well, in Turkey, of course, the dominant regime says, actually, there is no such thing as Kurds. Kurds are made up. They're really just mountain Turks. Mm -hmm. Just like Putin says that the Ukrainian nation is fake. It's really part of Russia. It's Mm -hmm. all just sort of made up. And so in that way, there might be this, hey, we're all pluralistic. The, The idea of any kind of alternative nation is a violation of our history or... Yeah, when you make like and when you allow for a malleable and flexible discourse in a country, it gives the power to the person in control because it allows for certain individuals to, you know, ethnic groups and subaltern publics to move around within that centralized regime, but but overall the king controls everything and he can he can he can create and frame the space for you to exist within it. Unlike in Turkey with the Kurds, where there's no ability to exist. And um, so you have to create your own survival strategies. So because the king is not seen as the sort of leader of a particular ethnic group within that almost, even though he's married to these two women, or his father was. Yeah, his father was, yeah. But he, so he can sort of speak for everybody. Mm -hmm. He's what makes the he's the protector of every group within that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's the mediator of it all. And if I had more time, I could talk about um, the how he makes civil society fight against each other. So Uh he's the mediator. He he made the Islamist groups and the Amazigh groups and the feminist groups fight with each other during like riots in 2011 to make himself the mediator. And then he gave a speech on a constitutional referendum, which acknowledged the favorable good dissidents wi- mm-hmm. movements within that riot, which were the Amazigh and the feminists, um, because the Islamists were too fundamentalist and ruined the image of the country. But you, you get to choose which dissident movements make you look good. Right. So it's a much more sophisticated form of power, perhaps, mm-hmm. than just sort of the blunt uh, you know, um, I'm, I don't know, I'd say kind of Trumpianism is much more simple in, mm. the, in that it really <laughs> only appeals to a particular, you know, ethnic. It's very group. effective. Yeah. Very effective. Um, that's why if you look at 2020 riots with or like movements and uh, demonstrations with the Black Lives Matter movement, Biden um, and Kamala um, have a very good way of uplifting certain black voices um, to keep themselves democratic and liberal, but silencing others. Yeah, during the period when Mexico was a one-party state, the government, like, if, if you were in an oppositional group, eventually, if you got successful to a certain point, you would just be employed by the government and co-opted and your organization would be incorporated. And the state created fake opposition parties, yep. like a fake left party and a fake right party, mm-hmm. in order to kind of distract attention away from any sort of actually more legitimate dissident group. That's what the parliament is in Morocco, I would say. Um, in 2011, the Islamist groups were in power in parliament, and they were only in power because they were actually ex- extremely powerful in 2011 during like movements and riots, and the government was kind of scared, so... They got power and they've lost it all since the last parliamentary election. And the new parties are the king's parties in parliament and the Amazigh parties. So yeah. it's a, it's whatever the king feels at the moment should be represented in his government. Wow. I mean, that's awesome. One you know, question I want to 
say is that you, you talk about how the king has created through this exceptionalist discourse a mythology of persecution and has even said Morocco is a target. A, t a target from whom? Who's he talking about? I, I rarely target Morocco in my <laughs> everyday life. So what is he talking about in that kind of rhetoric of persecution? Well, it, there's a lot of human rights organizations within the country. Um, and the Islamists are anti-monarchy, mm -hmm. um, which you or like they're not anti-monarchy, but they are um, wanting a constitutional monarchy mm -hmm. um, where the king loses all judiciary and government powers and is just a symbol of Islam. That's what they want. And that cannot happen because the king will always want the power he has. So the target is the people within the country, like the Islamist groups and then the mm -hmm. human rights groups, which have transnational solidarity with other groups, mm -hmm. um, which can be threatening to um, the country. And while you say this very effective and very popular strategy of the king goes, is there sort of more blunt repression going on or, or is everything kind of contained within this? There's repression. Consent? It's just always there is repression in the country still to this day. It's just it's not reported as much as the like successes is like the yeah. 2011 constitutional referendum was reported on by U.S. newspapers, CNN and BBC and like, you know, UK, BBC News and all of these um, like media sources were like, look, the M Morocco is modernizing. It's finally like a, mo a monarchy is like doing this. This is unheard of. So it's not that it isn't being talked about. It's that we also have a play in how we, the Moroccan monarchy is shaped because we report on its like wins of democracy because it makes us look good too. Yeah. Um, and, but no, in 2011, when the February 20th movement occurred, which is a really big riot um, that occurred of like different descendant movements. And it was like 300,000 people on the street. They, there was violence. Like the monarchy did send troops to silence Islamists and um, a lot of people were hurt. But in the end, um, the movement was broken up by electing Islamist into the parliament and prioritizing feminist into the mon into the constitution. So that's how they the movement dies. Yeah, I'm I'm with Inara Hidalgo. I, I guess one last kind of point: this research that you've done really shows some of the value of the global studies uh, approach. Because even though you knew nothing about Morocco coming no. in, really, you've got. What you're working on is both rooted in the very specific situation of this particular country and its kind of depth of its history and culture and organization, but also very geared to a more general and comparative mm -hmm. application, right, that comes from um, your global studies and anthropology sort mm -hmm. of knowledge base. What, you know, one final question would be how could we apply, you know, the kind of learning and research you're doing with Morocco to something else that's going on in the world, either United States or mm -hmm. elsewhere? What, what do we learn more broadly from this particular case? Um, well, I think that the research I'm doing is very, like, um, much in tune with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, um, because the Moroccan king is... Um, he, he's taking this like romanticized framing of like language and territory and religion, just like Putin has with the Russian language being the ancestral language of both Ukrainians and Russians. And 
there's this fear of Ukrainians of like losing their language and like conserving it through um, translating it into like other languages. And that exactly occurs within Morocco too. Um, you, I, you see certain nation building strategies within all the centralized states um, across the globe. So it's not a one, it's not a one case study. It happens across many states. Right. There are other kind of strategies for maintaining power and all of which kind of, to some degree, reproduce this horrible, horrible idea of the nation state as the kind of privileged property or expression of a particular defined group, mm -hmm. you know, that silences other ways of, of creating meaningful interaction between people that's not based on that. And so I want to thank you and congratulate you on finishing and congratulate you on graduating. Uh, you've <laughs> been an amazing inspiration, I know, to many of your peers as well as your teachers. And um, good luck with whatever comes next as you move forward. Thank you, Ainara, from this particular rock. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> here at Lauren Wilson. Mm -hmm. All right. Awesome.